This is The Saucer Life, a podcast in which we examine concepts, events, or people orbiting the world of flying saucers. Few preconceptions, snark when justified, no belief, no debunking, no. I don't think I've covered any of these before. This is a read these books episode. As such, it's a little more low-key than previous episodes, kind of a breather, a little bit shorter, probably, hopefully, uh, because... um, I realized that the last six episodes, um, the first six episodes of the year or so, uh, not counting the afterlife episodes, have all been, if not over an hour, pushing an hour, which is, you know, great. I mean, I think they've they've turned out really well, but more than we usually do. And I have just gotten done wrecking my brain, finishing up a book of my own, and um, I need I need a, a break. So this is the break. I didn't want to not do an episode and I didn't want to do a, a best of thing that might happen in the future. If there are some, you know, disruptions or anything, but I haven't done that. I'd do something weird and different for a best of though. So we've got, I've got some books. We, the Royal, we have got some books to look at. The first is from someone we have seen here a lot on the show. And that is the late great Jim Keith. Jim Keith. And uh, this book is, and I'm holding it up here in front of me so I can read the title, Casebook on the Men in Black. And it was published by Illuminate Press, one of the the great, uh, sadly no longer with us, publishing companies of the 1990s that published so much great stuff. And it came out in 1997. And I first heard about this book when uh, Jim Keith was interviewed on a couple of paranormal radio shows. Um, I think he was, he was interviewed on Art Bell. I think one of the few times he was on Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell and also on the Jeff Rents program, which I think at that time was, was called Sightings on the Radio through a weird corporate synergy branding thing with the, uh, the Sightings television show. So 1997, Jim Keith writes a book about the men in black. And it's, it's interesting because as you know, as we know, Keith always came at these things, ufology, conspiracy theory, the paranormal in general, from a, a different perspective, not the, the orthodox accepted perspective among those fields, but from kind of a tangent. And the casebook on the men in black does much the same thing. And if you look at the list of people he's dedicated it to. One of them is the Reverend Alan Greenfield, who uh, has written a couple books on more esoteric aspects of the men in black phenomenon. And if you're familiar with Hellier, the series that premiered online and I believe is out on Blu-ray now, I think they were offering Blu-rays up for sale. You're familiar with Alan Greenfield and some of his ideas. Now, Casebook on the Men in Black goes through some of the basics, and it's a great way to start if you know next to nothing about the Men in Black. There's a good overview from Maury Island and Albert Bender up to more modern stuff, and it covers hoaxes. There's a whole chapter on hoaxes, including some stuff about our old pal Gray Barker, and there's also a a chapter about the Silence Group, which was what the NICAP types called those who they believed were covering things up. Some of the stuff is kind of I'll use this word again, tangential 
to the men in black mythos, such as this description of the encounters that Hitler, yes, that Hitler, experienced that were related to somebody afterward. Hitler was standing up in his room, swaying and looking all around him as if he were lost. It's he, it's he, he groaned. He's come for me. His lips were white. He was sweating profusely. Suddenly, he uttered a string of meaningless figures, then words and scraps of sentences. It was terrifying. He used strange expressions strung together in bizarre disorder. Then he relapsed again into silence, but his lips still continued to move. He was then given a friction and something to drink. Just interrupting here, I have no idea what a friction is um, that Hitler might have been given. I, I mean, I know what a drink is, but I don't know what a friction is. Um, maybe it's a typo of some kind, although I don't know for what. If anybody knows what a friction could mean, please let me know. Now, back to the thing. Then suddenly he screamed, there, over there, over in the corner, he is there. All the time stamping with his feet and shouting. To quiet him, he was assured that nothing extraordinary had happened, and finally he gradually calmed down. After that, he slept for a long time and became normal again. Keith doesn't ever actually explain whether or not the figure that Hitler might have seen was in any way connected to the Men in Black or in any way resembled any sort of, you know, standard description of the Men in Black. Not to be unkind to the late Mr. Keith, whose work I admire greatly, but it's almost like some of these stories were put in there to sort of pad the book out to get it up to, checking quick, 216 pages or so. Keith ends the book with probably the best possible thing that you could end a book about the Men in Black with. It's a Men in Black style event connected to the very creation of the book. While preparing this book, I contacted via telephone a veteran UFO researcher who had experienced two Men in Black encounters and had investigated others. Since a friend of his vouched for me, the man was eager to share his information. He promised to get busy at the first opportunity and to send me an audio tape and any other materials he had on the topic. Nearing the completion of the book, I still had not received the promised reports, and so I called the man up. He was extremely distraught and recounted a number of terrible things that had happened to him since he had promised to help me, the worst being that his teenage son had disappeared for a month, only to return during that week unable to account for where he had been. I suggested to the man that I didn't want to put him under any duress and would understand if he couldn't contribute to the book, but that if he did want to make the audio tape and send it, there was still time for the information to be included. He said that he would see if anything negative happened in response to our present conversation. Early on the morning of September 2nd, 1996, I was awoken by a phone call. According to the researcher, investigation had shown that his son had been abducted by aliens, and he didn't feel he could risk sending me the promised information. The man was frantic. I assured him that I understood his position. That is just glorious, isn't it? I mean, a, a well-known figure in the UFO community. And then his son disappears, had no idea where he was. And then it turns out on examination, he'd been abducted by aliens, which is just so goofy. But the kind of goofy you would expect from somebody who had a hand in some of the Commander X writings. And also, he doesn't really point this out. He doesn't play up this connection. But the teenage son who's missing and then turns up somewhere and didn't know where he was, um, 
that was part of the Maury Island story as well. So Keith is sort of, you know, doing a, a sort of uncredited callback to the Maury Island stuff, which I, I, that's just that's just good fun. I strongly recommend a case book on the Men in Black. It's it's a good overview of the phenomenon. It's uh, it, it's well written and it is available and affordable. It's been republished by Adventures Unlimited Press, and a link to it is in the show notes. Our next book is Republic of Lies, American Conspiracy Theorists and Their Surprising Rise to Power by journalist Anna Merlin. And this book is a more general overview of conspiracy culture. And in it, she identifies a number of um, factors, uh, economic disenfranchisement, racial animosity, uh, a number of things that have, while not new, have led to a recent resurgence and rise in conspiracy belief. Together, these elements helped create a society in which many Americans see millions of snares laid by a menacing group of enemies, all the more alarming for how difficult they are to identify and pin down. I saw a disturbing thirst for vengeance, a willingness to punish enemies and vanquish evildoers that is then easily twisted by opportunists. These things were in the country around me, in my own life, shadows that seemed to grow longer and longer, even as people became increasingly aware of the destructive power of conspiracy theories and began doing their best to fight them. Still, we are the suspicious, and the conspiracists are us, and there are more of us all the time. It's a good book. It's broad. Like I said, it's a broad overview, but it's uh, it's journalism. It's immersive. She goes to places. She spends time with people and um, some fairly shady people, people I would not want to hang out with, people like Sean David Morton. Uh, there's mostly known uh, more recently in more recent decades as a, a sort of psychic prophecy, financial swindler who was spending some time in federal prison. Um, she uh, she spent some time with him on a conspiracy cruise. I think it might have been the conspiracy cruise. He was arrested um, when he got off the dock, uh, if I'm remembering the story correctly. She spent some time with some Pizzagate types, with some neo-Nazis, all kinds of different groups. Um, and she goes to a UFON, UFON, MUFON conference as well. As I walked among the misshapen ceramic aliens and chatted with the vendors, I felt genuinely glad to be at MUFON after weeks spent in the more stressful company of Nazis and Pizza Gators and Sandy Hook truthers. It occurred to me that UFO lore might represent conspiracy culture at its best. Our interest in the hidden, the unknown, the ineffable, the magic of what's hidden and yet to be revealed. The UFO mystery holds a mirror to our own fantasies, Valet once wrote. It expresses our secret longings for a wisdom that might come down from the stars in new, improved, easy-to-use packaging to reveal the secrets of life and tell us at long last who we are. She then goes on to say that that ufology is not as as pleasant and innocent and as unpoliticized as it sometimes likes to pretend or may look on the surface. And she points in particular, and I, I think this is uh, an interesting and important point, she points in particular to the number of, of UFO people who, who sort of set themselves up as a persecuted political minority on the level of, I know how this is going to sound, actual persecuted political, cultural, and social minorities, which they are, <laughs> which UFO people are not actually. And, and, you know, you can always just sort of not be a UFO person. Um, you do have that option. 
other groups um, don't have the same choice about uh, about things sometimes. She uh, looks at some some interesting and more extreme types of ufology folks. Uh, Corey Good and David Wilcock make uh, make an appearance, and she does play up and sort of emphasize that there's a, a tension at the MUFON conference she, have, she attends between people like Good and Wilcock and uh, people like Richard Dolan, who is like, don't listen to Good and Wilcock, they're nuts, um, before he goes and starts being very Richard Dolan-y. So uh, we'll probably do a, a Corey Good and David Wilcock show um, at some point when they stop doing their thing and we can get some more, I don't know, distance looking at them because, um, I don't know, don't like doing things that are still, that are still going on. Plus, um, that allows me to talk about things that nobody else cares about, which is, uh, which is fun. Merlin's book is good. Republic of Lies is very good, and I do recommend it. And when I was working on my most recent book and sort of doing background reading and sort of seeing where the conspiracy sort of scholarship had gone, um, Republic of Lies was was one of the better books I found. Now, it is not a it is not a scholarly analysis of conspiracy culture, which is good. It's not jargony. It's not um, dense. There's another one by Muir and Rosenberg, Rosenbloom, Rosenberg or Rosenbloom. I always, I got them confused when writing them too. Um, it's called a lot of people are saying, and it's, it's good. It's good and useful from an analytical political science point of view, because Muir and Rosenberg slash Bloom are, um, just a second. I'm going to go check and see who actually wrote it. Okay. I'm back. And it's by Muirhead. Your head, M-U-I-R-H-E-A-D, and Rosenblum, R-O-S-E-N-B-L-U-M. Apologies to Professors Muirhead and Rosenblum for that. Um, boy, I screwed that up, didn't I? I was close. I was, I was close. But their book, A Lot of People Are Saying, is, that's the name of the book. I'm not saying a lot of people are saying. A lot of people are saying is the name of the book. And I, personally, am saying it is a good, very specific political science analysis of the rise of conspiracy culture, particularly what I found helpful in my own work is they're framing more recent conspiracy theories as, as something they call the new conspiracism, which is much less concerned about here is my binder of corroborating documentation for my conspiracy theory. The new conspiracism, on the other hand, is simply making louder and louder and louder assertions that something is true with suggestion taking the place of corroborating evidence. And one of the things that has allowed the rise of this new conspiracism, they argue, is social media, which doesn't leave a lot of room for excessive documentation, footnoting, um, or, you know, nuance and things like that. Anyway, um, a lot of people are saying is a good book, but I really, really urge you to read Anna Merlin's Republic of Lies. It is, uh, it is outstanding, and it's, it's entertaining to boot. You'll, you'll be informed and entertained when you read it. Next time, oh boy, next time. I've told a bit of the story way back when the show was pretty new. I think it was on one, uh, the very first sort of holiday special sort of mini episode. But this one, this one has a very slight personal angle, and it should be fun. Until someone gets murdered, which they do. Next time, it's King David's granddaughter and the shape-shifting Nasara lizard people from outer space. 
You can check out past episodes, read some reviews of saucer-related stuff, and support the show at saucerlife.com. You can also support us through the link in the show notes. Thank you very much to those who've donated in the past. It's, it's a huge help, actually, to what we're doing here. As always, we're on Twitter and Instagram at Saucer Life, uh, Facebook as well. And you can email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com. You can send us uh, things in the mail that are legal and do not explode uh, at Chizo Media, P.O. Box 68, Grand Blank, Michigan, 48480. And The Saucer Life is, of course, available anywhere you can find podcasts for easy subscription service. And we're back. Our third book is by friend of the show and friend of mine, Adam Go Rightly, and it is entitled Saucers, Spooks, and Kooks, UFO Disinformation in the Age of Aquarius with a fantastic, fantastic cover by uh, Miguel Romero, also known as Red Pill Junkie online. Uh, this this cover, I just want to talk about the cover a little bit. You can see a picture of it online if you go there. If you have ever bought a pocket-sized paperback book about UFOs, Bigfoot, anything like that, uh, that was published anytime between like 1966 and 1982, you will recognize this font. You will recognize that the, the design. It's uh, the, the whole aesthetic is very uh, is very retro. I uh, I like it a lot. And what this book does is explore a number of the storylines that have woven their way into the heart of UFO conspiracy theory discourse since the late 1970s. Everything from certain aspects of Roswell to underground bases to abductions to abductions being a plot to implant things in humans to the government being involved with this to every John Lear, O.H. Krill, John Grace, Val Valerian thing you've ever heard. Go Rightly takes all these things and digs down into the origins of these stories as well, I think, as anybody could possibly do. And you may be thinking to yourself, hey, I've read a book about Paul Benowitz. I know what's going on here. You may think you know what's going on here, but you might not know the whole story because this book goes deeper into the lore and the people involved than I think any other book has. Um, he talks, and go rightly that is, doesn't just talk about people, he talks to the people. He talks to the people who might have been behind the beginnings of some of these things. Um, you might know their names. You might not. You might have heard about people like Jason Bishop III. You might have heard of Tal Levesque. You might have heard of Branton. We're going to be doing a Branton episode here in uh, in a little while. But it, it, it's wild because Goretti's been talking to some of these people, and and it seems like none of them use their real name ever. And then some of them actually use the same fake name as other people have used. So it's difficult to know who's actually talking about what. And it's it's just it's just amazing, and it's well written. It's humorous. It's as easy to follow as a book like this could be. And by that, I mean this is an inherently confusing, complicated storyline, tracing all of these uh, all of these things back to their uh, possible or probable origins. You're not going to be able to just sort of skim read through it and think you're going to pick up on stuff. But at the same time, you probably aren't going to have to be there with 
you know, a legal pad and a pen, and you're not going to have to take notes as you're going. I, I, of course, encourage you to take notes as you're going because I, I'm a teacher and that's what I encourage people to do. But it's a great book. Here's a bit from the introduction. The Dulcie Bass story emerged around the same time that a self-described nuclear physicist named Bob Lazar surfaced, claiming he had worked at a secret base on the outskirts of Las Vegas, Nevada, called Area 51, where alien craft were being reverse-engineered. As with MJ-12 and the Dulcie Papers, these Area 51 revelations likewise set ufology on its pointed ears, and the mythology that grew out of this period has since become ingrained in popular culture. But were these stories based on the truth, or half-truths? Or were they spun out of whole cloth by opportunistic mythmakers? And, even more bizarrely, was the U.S. government involved in helping to create these myths? Goretli also talks about um, Bill Moore's presentation at the 1989 MUFON conference where he discussed the depths to which the U.S. government, elements of the U.S. government and military and intelligence uh, circles had penetrated ufology. And here's the thing. Some of the people who were involved in carrying out shady operations and deals and and chicanery back in the 80s are still hovering around the fringes of the field, you know, probably whispering in people's ears today. So here's a little bit from Bill Moore's speech at MUFON 89 um, in from Go Rightly's book. We'll do a we'll probably do an episode on Bill Moore's 89 MUFON presentation at some point. But listen to this. The current crop of disinformation is really nothing new. It's just that a different crop of people are spreading it this time around. I expect that those responsible, not the rumor mongers themselves, but the ones that are feeding them, thought it would work just as well this time as it did last. The one thing I'm sure they didn't count on is that I would tell my story and thus blow their cover. He could have given that speech last week, and it probably would have been as relevant. Not that I have any inside information about, you know, secret deals or whatever, or secret disinformation operations. But when you read Saucers, Spooks, and Kooks, you will come away from it knowing more about the origins of many of the stories that we've talked about here on the show and that some corners of the internet and some corners of UFO and conspiracy beliefs still sort of take for granted. But you'll also come away with it with a sense that the people who intentionally plant the kinds of stories that get circulated are pretty good at what they do. So I guess what I'm saying is once you read Go Ratley's book, you will have trouble believing anybody about anything. At least that was my takeaway from it. Absolute paranoia and mistrust. Our final book is kind of a encyclopedia anthology thing. It is Kooks, A Guide to the Outer Limits of Human Belief by Donna Cossey. And it was published in, oh shoot, I forgot to write it down. It was published in, gotta look quick, 1994 by uh, Feral House Publishing, still available um, on the uh, on the Amazon. And I put a link to that in the show notes. And I, I, I mentioned it in the show notes uh, today, but I'll say it here too. Those links do um, do help support the show. I think I've gotten um, I've gotten upwards of one US dollar over the last three years from links like that. But um, here's on, on the back cover, it has some some questions that are answered by the things in the book. Will drilling a hole in one's head cause enlightenment? Can a person's soul be captured by a lady's hairnet? Is Hitler alive and well and living in Antarctica? Were dinosaurs created by Satan? Are men capable of having babies? This is 
an extensive book that covers a lot of weirdness and conspiratorial stuff and some UFO stuff. There's a, a chapter on uh, contactee religions written by friend of the show, Greg Bishop, um, for one thing. But there's sections on, on metaphysics, there's sections on weird science, weird medical beliefs, political conspiracies, and things like that. And it's extensive, and I guarantee you, when you read this book, because I've ordered you to read this book, as I have with all of these books, when you read this book, you will find out about a group, a belief, an organization, something that you were not aware of. I can almost absolutely guarantee it. This one is my favorite. Steve Renstrom, a.k.a. Sheepop Steve, is a Seattle artist who believes that the former senator from California, Alan Cranston, whom he affectionately calls The Hog, is the evil genius behind the conspiracy responsible for the deaths of everyone from John Belushi to John F. Kennedy. Alan Cranston. For me, Alan Cranston was one of, let's see, there were probably, there's 100 people in the Senate, Probably 97 of them were men when I was, uh, when I was a youth. Um, for me, Alan Cranston was one of probably 97 mostly bald, middle-aged to elderly, interchangeable politicians who apparently ran my country. Um, I, I don't recall anything about Alan Cranston really sticking out other than, for some reason, I was aware of him. But Alan Cranston is behind everything. And here's an example of how Senator Cranston, or the hog was able to um, to to wreak havoc. Here's an example, and it is confusing. This doesn't make a lot of sense. It's not you. It's this person not making a lot of sense. The rock band Sonic Youth. They were brainwashed into writing their song "Kill Your Idols." It's just standard hog schemes. They painted a logical story as to how the next to go rock star supposedly dies. It's a brainwashed scenario. The hog needs to kill, say, Pat Benatar because she's a material witness that could hang Cranston in his flakes. So they brainwash the song Kill Your Idols onto the scene. Then they brainwash a kid to kill Pat Benatar. Rock takes the fall for the hog's murder of rock. The hog slides and no one suspects. I'm not entirely sure that all adds up, but the hog is a powerful guy, and um, I just wish he wouldn't, you know, try to kill Pat Benatar. That's uh, that's terrible. I highly recommend Kooks. It's almost too big to get into in too much detail, but there, there's there's people in there you've heard of. Um, there's a there's a chapter on Bill Cooper because hey, you know, you have to have a chapter on Bill Cooper if you've got a book involving weird conspiratorial beliefs. My biggest complaint about the Bill Cooper chapter is that even though this book came out in 1994, it still focuses largely on his UFO and alien stuff, and he had moved on by that time. Of course, unless you were listening to The Hour of the Time on shortwave in 1994, you wouldn't know that Cooper had denounced ufology or ufology and was uh, was sort of straight up, you know, you know, militia uh, type stuff at that point. So, can probably let that go because the most recent thing she probably had from him was behold a pale horse, which was still very much into the UFO thing. So four great books, uh, four books that have some, uh, some similarities being on the conspiratorial side of things rather than the strictly ufological side of things, but still closely connected to the type of topics that we often discuss here on the show. So I do want to thank you 
for your attention to this read this books segment. Um, it was a little less intensive for me to prepare, which was good because as I uh, discussed at the outset of the show, I am uh, sort of mentally and intellectually recovering from finishing up a, uh, a big project. So it was nice to have a little bit of a reprieve and have an episode that clocks in at a little less time. Maybe you feel the same way about the show, although you can unsubscribe. I cannot. I am trapped in the show. So thanks again for listening. Links to the books discussed are in the show notes, and I think this is the first time that we've done any kind of uh, book review segment where the books discussed are all available at reasonable prices in, um, in new condition. It's pretty amazing. Um, I know that Go Rightly's and Merlin's books are extremely new, and you should have no trouble getting them at all. Music and special sounds are by the Chizo Media Radiophonic Workshop under the direction of Freddie Von Ronka. The associate producer of The Saucer Life is Simpson J. Hanover III. The Saucer Life is a production of Chizo Media, LLC. Chizo Media, our heart is with the people. Till next time, read a book.